you know that light travels at 186,000 miles per second? Just when I snap my fingers, light has gone around the globe about six times. It's that fast. Let, let me put that in perspective. Uh, the sun, our sun, is about 93 million miles away. How far is 93 million miles away? Well, some of us, it feels like Henderson. Am I right? Anyway, <laughs> but 93 millions of miles away, if you were to drive 60 miles an hour for 24 hours a day for 365 days a year with no stops, meaning you did not take your children with you, it would take you more than 163 years to drive to the sun. The light that warms our face, uh, the sunlight that warms our face in the day is only 8 minutes old. Light travels that fast. Let me take it one step further. Uh, our sun is the nearest star in our galaxy called the Milky Way. Uh, astrophysicists have discovered galaxies that are 13.7 billion light years away. So you may be wondering, Ty, what is the distance of a light year? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, the distance of one light year is about 5.88 trillion miles. Okay. So this galaxy beyond ours, if you were to take 13.7 billion multiplied by 5.88 trillion, for you mathematicians out there who will correct my math later on, it is this, 80 sextillion miles away. And some of you are like, sextillion? That's my favorite uh, unit of measurement right there. Nonetheless, that's a long way away. Can you contemplate that distance? I mean, it's kind of incomprehensible, isn't it? To think about something that far away. Now, you may be wondering, Ty, why are we geeking out with all this distance and math and all these fun things? Well, let me read a scripture for you. Isaiah chapter 55. It's not our text, but I want to put something in perspective. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. This is God speaking to his people. For my thoughts, God's thoughts, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We all were like, oh, I totally agree with that. Verse 9. For as the heavens, how far are the heavens away? 86 trillion miles away. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than yours and God's thoughts than yours. So here's my thought. Our best thoughts on our best day is about 13.7 billion light years short of God's thoughts. <laughs> Why in the world am I saying this? Today we're continuing our journey through the book of Romans. If you've missed any of it, you can go back and just read it. Uh, read the first eight chapters. You can go back and listen to it on our website. Uh, but we're going to make a big transition in the book. And the, the, the next season that we're going through in the book of Romans is a highly and hotly debated section. We're going to be talking about God's eternal plan. And we're going to hear words like election and predestination and chosen people. Probably for some of you, you've heard that uh, in systematic theology is called the doctrines of grace. Or maybe you've heard it softened by the term of reformed theology. Or some of you have been hit by the hammer of Calvinism. Okay, there we go. <laughs> got, got them. And then also in this section, we're going to be talking about Jewish people, uh, God's people of the Old Testament, Israel, the Israelites. And so where do they fit in all of this? And so it's going to take us three chapters to go through that and to figure some of this out. All that to say, I come to the conclusion now as we go through these three chapters that God's thoughts and God's ways are not always my thoughts and my ways. Would you agree with that? And so if you've got a Bible, go to Romans chapter 9. Uh, and we're just going to go through the first five verses today. I originally was going to go through nine verses. That's why we had it read. But I decided you guys probably didn't want to sit here for three hours. So I was like, I'll just boil it down to the first five verses, and then we'll, we'll start with there. Uh, but we're going to begin chapter 9 today. 
And to understand chapter 9, you need chapter 10 and 11. To understand chapter 10, you need chapter 9 and 11. And to understand chapter 11, guess what you need? 9 and 10. And so I want our starting point as we get, through, get ready to go through this very um, uh, tough to interpret, tough to understand uh, section, I want us to begin with a doxology, which means a song of praise. And so uh, in, instead of going right to Romans 9, go to Romans 11 real quick. And at the end of Romans 11, you see this doxology. It's like a song of praise. And that's where I want us to start. I want us to anchor ourselves uh, because it's going to be a very difficult section that we're going to go through. So we'll start in verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depths. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. His ways cannot be scrutinized. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who have, who's ever been his counselor? Any of you guys ever been God's counselor? We try though, don't we? Well, God, if it were up to me, I would. No. It's basically the question is, no one has. Verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks be to God for his revealed will. And, and we're going to be saying thanks be to God for his mysterious will as well. Now, but turn back to Romans 9, but I'm going to be all over the place. This morning's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be heavy on the teachy. It's going to feel very set up because I need to set us up before we launch off into this. Uh, but I want you to take yourself back to about 2,000 years ago. Imagine you are a part of the church of Rome. And I also want you to imagine that uh, as you sit there, that you come from Jewish heritage, meaning you come from a uh, Jewish line, Israel's line, you're an Israelite or formal, you're, like you're, your family's Jewish, okay? Can you do that? Put yourself 2,000 years ago. And so you hear that Paul has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to, uh, to write a letter to you and to have it read amongst you. And so everyone would gather together and they would get this letter in and then they would read the letter in its entirety, which is a huge advantage, read this letter in its entirety over the whole church and you would be hearing this. Now remember also, uh, if you've been with us during this adventure, that there are two um, kind of types of people within this church. There are Jewish people who converted to Jesus. The Jewish people would know their Old Testament. They would know the Torah. They would know the, the Psalms. They would know the prophets. They would know the things of the Old Testament. They would have the, the cultural down pat. They, they got it. And then there were also the Greek people, the Gentiles, who were somewhat pagan. They worshipped lots of gods and lots of different things, uh, somewhat known as heathens and pagans back in the day. Uh, and so they came to know Jesus as well. And so they're all together. Uh, where the world is dividing them, they're all together as one in Christ. Got it? Okay. And so if, you, if you've been listening to this, you've been hearing Paul labor over God's grace and labor over that you cannot be saved by works, that the law is a good thing, but it doesn't have the power to save you because you can't save yourself. And then you get all the way to chapter 8, and Paul starts talking about the golden chain of salvation, and he starts with saying, you have been predestined, and you're going to be justified, and ultimately you're going to be glorified. I could imagine the Greek people there, the Gentiles who had converted to Jesus, coming out of their chairs, shouting, hooray, right? They're like super excited, especially the men, because the men were like, wait a minute, we don't have to become Jewish first. Hooray, no snip snip for me. <laughs> Some of you are like, you're like, well, that's very offensive. It's all over the Bible, I'm telling you. And so those guys are like, woohoo, like, yippee. But imagine if, and this is what I've asked you to do, imagine if you're Jewish at this whole time. 
and you came to see that Jesus is the chosen one, the Christ, the Messiah, you've got to be sitting there wondering like, wait a minute, wait a minute, the rest of my family has not trusted Christ. Wait a minute, I've got, you know, an aunt, an uncle, I've got some kids, I've got a parent, I've got a Grammy, I've got like all these people who have not trusted Jesus. What about them? It kind of feels like they're being left out and you're like, but wait a minute, that doesn't make sense because I know my Old Testament and it feels like the Old Testament people are, are in. And as I hear Paul say this, it almost feels like Paul is dissing the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, dissing God's law, which I don't think he is, but maybe coming across that way. And so the Jewish people sitting in there hearing this, they go like, wait, this is, this is weird. This is odd. Well, let me reread for you a little bit Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. Hear this as a Jewish person sitting there 2,000 years ago. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hooray. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law, which I think means principle of sin and death. For God has done what the law, now when he says law right there, I think he means the Old Testament. I think he means the Torah. I think he means all the, the 613 laws or so of the Old Testament. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That again, in this moment, I think when the, the Greeks are hearing this read, they're cheering, they're high-fiving. But I think the, the Jewish converts in that moment, you'd be sitting there shaking your head. You're like, wait a minute, this is, this is unsettling. It's like Paul's gospel is undoing Israel's election. That Israel was God's chosen people. That God promised that they would be his people. Remember, right, from the Old Testament, Israel is God's chosen people, am I right? Have you read your Old Testament? Yeah. And so they would thought, well, well, God's doing something different now. Is he leaving Israel out? Is God going back on his word? Is God not fulfilling his promises? Now, we bring yourself to right now where you are as a Christian, if you're a Christ follower today, we need to listen to this as well, because if God is going back on his word, going back on his promise, then as we read Romans 8 right now, we have to be a little bit nervous of like, whoa, 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 whoa. If, 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 if God is going back on his promise to the Old Testament people, will he do that to us as well? Has God's word failed? That's the big question that Paul is going to be dealing with. And I think Paul, as he was writing this down, he understood, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there's going to be lots of questions to the Jewish listener of this. And, and it's going to really, really matter. Because if you're a Jewish person listening to this, then you've got to figure out, like, where, where do we fit in this whole paradigm? Because we can't forget the words of Jesus. Don't go there, but I'll tell you about this one. John 14, 6. You guys know John 14, 6, right? John 14, 6 says this. Jesus said to them, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one, which means what? No. Comes to the Father, except through Jesus. Now, you're probably wondering, well, what do I think about this? And it would be foolish for me to present the cards too early for you of like, here's what I think about all this. I think the best thing we can do is just unleash God's word and let God's word speak to us. I give you my word on this, that uh, through this difficult section, I will do my best to study my hardest to figure out exactly what's going on here. But I, I at the end of the day, want God's word to speak. There's a, a theologian who passed away a couple of years ago named R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul, one of the greatest preachers and greatest theologians and writers uh, of our time, uh, he had this little note card sitting on his desk, and it said this, and I want this to be true of all of us here. 
And this, this, this little note kind of spoke this back to him. It says this, It is your duty to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like it to teach. May we sit under that as well. Not what we'd like it to teach, but God's ways are higher than our ways, and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So let's let the Bible speak. So what about Israel? Let me give you a little bit of a breadcrumb. Stay where you're at in your Bible. But if you go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, don't forget it says this. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it, it, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, which I believe is from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Everyone who believes. Okay, now are we ready to get into Romans 9? Let's try it. Let's see what happens. I told you it's going to be a little bit different. Romans 9, uh, are you guys there? Hey, by the way, we lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. If you don't have one, we want to give you one, so let me know. There's some around here. Just grab one. There's, maybe your neighbor has one. Look like they've had it for a while. Just take theirs. They'll give it to you. <laughs> oh, yeah, there goes my Bible. I was like, yeah, that's cool. Verse 1, I am speaking the truth. Now, it feels like this big hard shift from Paul. Like everything is like cupcakes and rainbows in verse 8. And all of a sudden, it's like, He's like, you know, I'm going to take a nap. And then he woke up on the wrong side of the bed is what it feels like. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Everything's been great up until this point, especially in chapter 8. It is the greatest chapter of the Bible, the most cheerful chapter of the Bible. And yet now he has anguish. He has like this underlying pain agony inside of him. He goes about his life and every day with something just tugging at him, something kind of tearing him apart. Now, he's even making sure the church understands that he's not faking it. He said, even in tears, like, the, like you ever seen the pastor who can cry on demand? This is not Paul. Paul's like, like this, this is legit. Why is he in pain? Look at verse three. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who is Paul's brother and kin, kinsman according to the flesh? Who are those people? The Jews, Jewish people, Israel. That's, Paul loved his people, the Jewish people, Israel, Israelites. Uh, many Jewish people of the time, his time, did not respond in faith to Jesus uh, being the Messiah of the Old Testament. Whenever you see the word Christ written in the New Testament, Christ is the Greek word. It's not Jesus' last name. It's not on his mailbox. Christ is the, is the uh, Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah means promised one. It is the it's one that God promised to, to come and fulfill all the promises of God, to be the rescuer, the redeemer, the deliverer. And we know the Messiah as? Well, that was your part. We know the Messiah as? Jesus. Because that's the whole of Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is speaking of Jesus. Uh, you ever watch the movie Sixth Sense? You ever watch it the second time? The first time you watch the movie Sixth Sense, if you've not seen this movie, it came out in the 90s, M. Night Shyamalan, Bruce Willis is in it. He's dead. Spoiler. Nonetheless. Uh, and so you, when you watch it the first time through, you're, you're shocked to find out, which I just spoiled it for you, he's dead. It's your fault because the movie's almost 30 years old. Nonetheless. When you watch it the second time through, you can see it plain as day. Like, ah, there it is, there it is, there it is. All the way to the point of like, yeah, yeah, he's dead. We've known it now. 
The same thing is with the Old Testament. You read through the Old Testament once, you're like, man, what is going on here? There's this one promise. You get to the New Testament, you're introduced to Jesus, and then you go back and read the Old Testament again, you're like, oh, there he is, there he is, there he is, all over the place, right? Jesus says this of himself. This is post-cross, post-resurrection. Jesus said this of himself. Luke 24, verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, which would be what? The Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah. The prophets, and I think he means the, you know, the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the minor prophets, the ones we can't pronounce. I think those as well. And then the Psalms must be fulfilled. And Jesus is saying all of the entirety of the Old Testament is pointing to me. And so the problem that Paul's having in our text today, the reason why he's so sad, the reason why he's so upset, he is tore up because his fellow brothers and sisters, his fellow Jewish people are not seeing Jesus as Messiah. And he knows what that's like as well. Because you remember Paul's former life, in Paul's former life, he loved the Old Testament. He was a student of the Old Testament. He was a teacher of the Old Testament. And yet he hated Christians because he hated their Christ Jesus. But then what happened to Paul? Remember that scene in Acts chapter 9? And like Jesus meets him, knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and all of a sudden he's like, hey, you're mine, and saves him. And now he's like, hey, you're going to go now and you're going to proclaim the gospel and watch me save other people as well. And so now he wants this for his brothers and sisters. He wants this for his people. Man, what a heart. Pay attention to verse 1 again in Romans 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness me, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Why is Paul so adamant and that he's telling the truth? Why is he calling upon the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and his own conscience? Why is he doing this? Because I'm going to assume that through Romans chapter 1 through 8, there's got to be Jewish people sitting in there thinking he's kind of dissing us. He's kind of anti Jewish. He definitely looks anti-law, which would be anti-Torah. I mean, you don't have to go there, but if you look back at some of the previous things we've gone through in Romans chapter 2, verse 24, Paul says, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, the Jewish people. Or if you look at Romans 3, 9, Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And the idea for Jewish people to hear that you're equal with a Gentile, whew, those are fighting words back then. That's like telling a Republican that they're equal with Democrats, or Democrats are equal with a Republican, or for the rest of us who don't care, we just don't care. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You wait till later on, not from me, but from this book, for what Paul's going to say to the Jewish people. You wait till you see what he says. Like, he's trying to prove that he sincerely loves them, and yet he's trying to jar them. He's, tr- he, he, he's trying to, to explain all this to them. Romans 9, 3. Go back to verse 3. Listen to Paul's word. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to flesh. What's Paul saying right here? Accursed and cut off from Christ. What, what is he saying? He's saying this, I wish I could lose my salvation in order to give it to my brothers and sisters, Jews. Which from Romans 8, we know that he cannot, am I right? He's, nothing can separate us, not even creation, he being a part of creation, he can't do that. Yet what he's doing here, he's showing his heart. 
Even in the terminology, it says accursed right here. You know what accursed means? It means to be damned. It means to be damned to hell is what he's talking about right here. He's basically saying, I'll take hell so they don't have to. Martin Luther, which we quote Martin Luther quite often, and we like Martin Luther and the things of the Reformation. There were some things that Martin Luther really got wrong when it came to a Christian's relationship with Jewish people. You can read on that in your own time. But Martin Luther did say this. It seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. So quick question so we make sure we're on the same page. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is he anti-Jewish or pro-Jewish? And the answer is so much so. He, he'd even, he's like, I, I wish I could give up my salvation. Oh, Grace Point Church, that we could have the heart of Paul. That we walk around with a bit of sadness in our hearts. As we have joy on our lips, but a bit of, a bit of anguish inside of us when we think about our people in our lives who don't know Christ. Oh, that we would go to the length, Grace Point Church, in which Paul would. Oh, that we would believe in an actual and literal biblical hell and the anguish and the torment that faces people by God's right and perfect wrath. Oh, that we would do whatever it takes, whatever in our power to get the gospel to people or people to the gospel. Paul loved the lost. Paul loved his people. Now, in verse 4 and 5, He's going to start talking about the Old Testament people, the Israelites, the Jewish, their privileges. They had, they had lots of privileges. Look at verse 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites. So he kind of, you know, he's saying, hey, these are my people. The Israelites, and to them belong, and so he gives a list here. They belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever." Amen. Paul's right here saying that the Israelites are a special nation. They are God's chosen nation, and God gave them so many privileges. Let's roll through these privileges really quick. He talks about adoption. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, the nation as a whole is called sons. Uh, I, don't, I think it's a little bit different than adoption that we see in the New Testament of individuals, but he's saying as a nation that he uh, adopted them as his people. Later on in the New Testament, we see that we've been adopted by all that Jesus has done on our behalf, and now we can cry out and call God our Father or Abba, right? It's great news. Let me look at the next one. He says glory. Glory means the white hot presence of God. Whenever you look in the Old Testament, you see that God's presence was, was with his people. Sometimes it was in a consuming fire or like a, a fire of some sort. Sometimes it was in a, a cloud. And was, we read the Old Testament, we talk about his Shekinah glory, which is such a cool word to say, Shekinah. His Shekinah glory, his white hot presence. Later on, we see in the book of John, that Jesus comes and dwells with us and we have seen his glory. We see the covenants here. What is a covenant? It is an everlasting binding agreement that God has with his people. And we see covenants throughout the Old Testament. We see covenants with uh, Abraham and Moses and David. And later on in the New Testament, we see that Jesus comes in this new covenant, the covenant of his blood where we'll be his new people. We see there that they were given the law. Isn't that a great thing? God gave his people the law. You know what that means? It is a special thing that we don't think about often, but God has revealed himself to people. Nowhere is God obligated to reveal himself to us. God could have remained a mystery to us, and we'd just be looking up at the sky, scratching our heads, thinking, I wonder what God is like. 
And yet God has revealed his law. He revealed his law to the Old Testament people. And in his law, he's saying, this is how you relate to me and flourish. And this is how you relate to the world around you to be distinct and to flourish. And yet when we go along the path here, we see that we don't follow God's law completely and wholly and perfectly. And therefore we do not flourish. And yet we see Jesus becomes fully man and it's under God's law and completes it perfectly, showing us how humanity is supposed to flourish. It says they have the worship. When it says there that the, they were given the worship, I think he's talking about temple. You remember what temple was like in the Old Testament? Was it, was it clean or was it bloody? Could you imagine the blood? Have you ever read the book of Leviticus? It's bloodier than a Quentin Tarantino film, am I right? <laughs> like Kill Bill 1's got nothing on it. And it's bloody. Why? Because it costs an animal's blood for us to be forgiven in order to be somewhat in the presence of God. And then later on we see... Jesus comes, he's the one and done, the spotless lamb who dies on the cross for us to where there's no more sacrifices. And the book of Hebrews tells us that now because of Christ's blood, we can approach the throne of God with confidence and receive grace and mercy. Isn't that great? It started with them though. Then they have the promises. Look throughout the Old Testament, it's full of promises that the Messiah will come. And now we're like, hey, he came. And then lastly, the patriarchs. Think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but I think there's other patriarchs of the Old Testament as well. I think there's Joseph, Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David, and God would speak through them and use them, and they were to be a type of Messiah, but they always failed. But they were pointing to the one Messiah who would come and not fail, and his name is? Look at all the privilege they have. Verse 5 again. He says, to them belong the patriarchs and from uh, their race, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. What does he mean by that? He's saying from the Jewish people came Jesus. Hey, real quick, in case you don't know this, might want to write it down. Jesus is not American. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> He didn't come about in 1776 with the Constitution. No, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't. Uh, he is Middle Eastern. Matter of fact, he is Jewish. He is Jewish. And it says from the Jews, from, from, from that people group is where we get in the flesh Jesus. And I love how Paul makes sure we understand that Jesus was 100% man. But then he says, is the Christ who is God over all. And I think right there he's saying, and not only is he fully man, but he's also what? Fully God as well. And then he turns it into a bit of a doxology here, a way to praise Jesus. Blessed forever, amen. Okay, that's our text for today. That's a bit of the setup. In the coming weeks, we're going to build some major tension. If you want to go ahead and start reading ahead and studying ahead, that would be great. I would appreciate that because we're going to start talking about election, election of the Old Testament people, which is going to lead us to believe uh, and see the election of the New Testament people and us as well. We're also going to see how does Israel fit within all of that. So we need to understand those things. Now, here's what I want to do. Before we start baptizing, which we've got uh, a lot of people set up to baptize today, I think from this text, we need to ask ourselves two questions. Two questions that we should ask ourselves. Looking at those uh, that he's talking about there, two questions we ask ourselves. Question number one, we need to be serious about this, is do I have a heart for the lost? That's a question you need to ask yourself. Like, do, do I have a heart for the lost? 
and you're like, what does a heart for the lost look like? Look to Paul. Look right in our text today. He should be a great example for the lost. He gives us a great example of the heart that we should have. Now, who is lost in your life, meaning apart from Jesus? Who pops into your mind? Family member? Parent? Sibling? Child? Coworker? Best friend? Neighbor? Do you have heart for them to know Jesus? Are you concerned about their separation from Christ? Have you got to the place, let's just be honest, where you're just resigned to the fact of like, you know what? Jesus is just not ever going to save them. Have you thought that before? Like you just think, oh, they must be so bad or they're so far gone or I don't know what to do with them. And like, you know, I guess God's just not going to save them. Paul was an absolute mess over the thought of his brothers and sisters, his, his people missing out on Jesus now and forever. So my question is, why can we not, why don't, why don't we do the same? Like, we should be a mess over this. Like, we, like, what are we doing about this? We should be inviting people to Christ. We need to take Jesus to them. We need to bring them to where the gospel is proclaimed as well. I mean, if we do nothing at all, listen to me, if we do nothing at all, would you please promise that, you know what, I'm going to pray for the lost people every day. I don't know what to say to them. I don't know how to love them. I don't know what to do with them. But the first thing I can do is I can just pray. Will you do that? Give me a little nod if you'll do that. Shake your head no. Like, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, all right, well, you're right where you're at. Some of you, uh, yeah. Some of us are too theologically smart for our own good. And you're like, well... I'm reformed, and I believe in the doctrines of grace, and God saves who God's going to save. And if they're elect, then what does it matter if I do anything? Listen, do not allow your theology to make you disobedient. If your theology makes you disobedient, guess what? Your theology is bad. It just, it just is. Don't believe me? See, uh, see anti-Semitism, see racism, see all of that. If your theology leads you to disobedience, it is bad. Now, I do believe our Bible teaches us that God elects, God chooses people, God predestines people. Absolutely. But let me ask you a question. Do you know who they are and who they're not? Because I don't either. And do you know that the Bible tells each and every one of us as Christians to go and demonstrate the gospel to them and the way we love and the way we love one another and the way we care for them and, 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 don't forget, and to proclaim the gospel to them as well? Do you know that as well? And so we don't want to be disobedient. We're going to act like everyone is elect, and we're going to go share the gospel, and we're going to go demonstrate the gospel, and we're going to let God save people because that's what he does. That's his job, right? So please, 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 please don't let your, let your theology stop you and to be disobedient. Because if it's not you, then who's it going to be? You're the one with the relationship. You're the one in that family. You're the one that works with them in that cubicle. You're, you're the one with them. You're the one. Rodney Starks, he worked, uh, was a professor at Baylor, a sociologist, and he wrote this book, and the book is called Cities of God, and his quest in this book was, how did Christianity become an urban movement and conquer Rome? How did the early church explode in growth? And he said it was through personal evangelism. This is what he says. Social networks 
are the, are the basic mechanism through which conversion, people getting saved, takes place. Most conversions are not produced by professional missionaries conveying a new message, but by rank-and-file members who share their faith with friends and relatives. The principle that conversion spread through social network is quite consistent with the fact that the earliest followers of Jesus shared many family ties and long-standing associations, meaning they're a part of your family. They're the ones you relate with as well, your friends. Although the very first Christian converts in the West have been full-time missionaries, the conversion process soon became self-sustaining as new converts accepted the obligation, and I would add privilege, to spread their faith and did so by missionizing their immediate circle. And listen, don't treat people as projects. Treat them as people and just love them well and demonstrate the gospel well to them and show them the grace and forgiveness that you received and tell them about Jesus and bring them here to your family and do all of that, right? Number one, do you have a heart for the lost? Number two, number two, I think the second question this text brings up, am I squandering my privileges? I think Paul in verse four and five gives a list of their privileges that like these were great things and every one of those things were to draw them to Christ. Every one of those things were to grow them in Christ. Every one of those things was to produce a a, a growing holiness in them. Every one of those things were to grow this idea of I want to tell other people about Jesus. So am I squandering my privileges? Let me give you an example about us humans, how tricky we are. Let me give an example. Um, Each and every one of us, or we will know someone who has a season that's a rough season, right? You'll go through a season of struggling. Maybe right now you're going through a season of struggling, or maybe someone you know is going through a season of struggling. And that struggling can be relational. Uh, Typically, if you're married, you go through a season of marriage struggles. Am I right? Give me a little nod if you're going through a little marriage struggle. Yeah, you go through marriage struggle, parenting struggle, maybe going through job struggle, maybe going through personal health struggle, maybe going through some anxiety, some loneliness, different things like that. And so when you or someone else is going through a struggle, uh, you realize it, and then you reach out to someone and you ask for help, right? That's what you're supposed to, ask for help. Somebody like, what? Yeah. Ask for help. And so someone will come to you or you will go to someone if they're asking for help and you will present them with a path to healthiness. You ever done this before? Like, hey, uh, here's what you need to do. Or they tell you, hey, here's what you need to do and this will really help you out in your struggle. See, so often in life, the cure to what ails us is right in front of us. The path is visible. The help is there. The advice is given. But for some reason, we don't want it. We want to ask. We want to struggle and strain. We want, we want to, to get some help, but we either don't want that help. We don't want to do those things. We don't like it coming from those people. Why? Because we think we know what's best in our lives. You ever thought that before? We think we know what's best. Like God has a plan for you. Like God, <clears throat> excuse me, I would like to be your counselor. I don't like that way. And so I'm going to do things my way. God, he's like, well, I'll see that and raise you a Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of? For instance, for instance, our society is dealing with an epidemic of loneliness, of friendlessness, of depression, and of anxiety due to loneliness. There's a landmark book uh, on this from an author by the name of Robert Putman. And Robert Putman wrote this book called Bowling Alone. Hilarious title, Bowling Alone. Now, in his book, his research is data-driven, it is uh, fact-based, 
It has no bias whatsoever, and it gives the cure, the, the, the data-induced, the truthful cure for loneliness. Are you ready for his diagnosis? If any of you are dealing with loneliness or friendlessness out there, feel like no one knows me, I don't know anybody, he gives the cure. Are you ready to hear this? Join a church. Let's pray. <laughs> Join a church, a civic organization or athletic league. Or for some, maybe perhaps get married and start a family or, or be in community of some sort. Be own, uh, vulnerable. Open your home. Go and do real things instead of virtual things. Hey, if you're, you, we're, we're live streaming at nine, so this is going to get really weird real quick. Hey, hey, you out there in the internet world, hey, um, for some of you, this is for you because you're deployed or you're you know, something like that. I get that. But if you have opportunity to be here and you're choosing the virtual world instead, instead, as one of your pastors, if you give me the privilege to say that, it's time to come back. Amen. You need people. You need, you need these people. And so I, I understand uh, it's easy to get out of the habit, but it takes a, a fresh day to start a new habit. And so just want to welcome you back. For the rest of you deployed and all that, hey, hope you're doing well wherever you're at. Nonetheless. But here's the reality of, this, uh, of Robert Putman's um, journey. He's basically saying that in order to cure loneliness, friendlessness, get around other people. Make yourself vulnerable. We can do that, right? Those are privileges that we get in this modern society, right? But time and time again, we as human beings refuse it. We refuse it. The vice is solid. The facts and data are there but we refuse it. Now, end of example. Let's go into some real examples for us. We have some great spiritual blessings as Christians that I think, if not careful, we squander. Let me give you the first one, prayer. We have open access to God at any time, right? Because you know, you don't have to just pray out loud. You can pray in your mind all the time, right? And so we worry, and, wor and worry is just us uh, taking things out of God's hand, like, I got this, God, and we just worry about it. Worry is basically praying to yourself. And so instead of just praying to yourself, we have access to God because of Jesus now. Don't squander that spiritual privilege. Guess what else we have? Guess what else we have, Christians? We have Bibles. We have God's Word. Up until like the 1500s, most people didn't have one. After the printing press, we've got these things called Bibles, and inside of there is everything God wants to tell us how humans are to flourish. And so are we squandering our opportunities to commune with God through the Bible. We have sacraments. We're going to see baptism here in a moment. We have the Lord's uh, table. We have that as well. We have preaching. It's a good thing to sit under preaching. That's a great thing, preaching and teaching. We have this church. We get to gather together. You know how big of a deal that is? Heard a story a long time ago. A famous preacher was over in China, and he was over there teaching for uh, hours at a time, three or four hours at a time. Did you hear that? Three or four hours at a time. People came after he was finished teaching. They're all sitting around in the room. He says, how can I pray for you? And, and the people of China said, hey, would you pray that we become like you Americans? And he says, no way. <laughs> he said, most people would not walk three or four hours to get here. Most people would not be sitting here for three or four hours on a dirt floor with no AC when it's really, really hot here and listen to three to four hours teaching. As a matter of fact, would you pray for us to become more like you? 
We have the spiritual blessing of just being together. Like church is not some option to us. No, no, this is a family. We get the privilege to gather together and God dwells among us and we worship over God's word together and sing songs over one another. This is the pri- it's not like, well, the football game's on today, so I think I'll skip it and just watch it online later. And then that's you, right? I'm pointing at the camera. <laughs> spiritual gifts. We all have spiritual gifts. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. Are you squandering it? Are you hiding it? It's, it's to use, what is a spiritual gift used for? To edify one another or to build up your brothers and sisters. So we, we, gotta, we gotta serve one another. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But the question is, are we squandering? How do you know if I'm squandering some spiritual gifts that we are some, some of these privileges we have? I'll give you one. Stagnation. Just stagnant. I'm not hot, I'm not cold, I'm barely lukewarm. I'm not telling anybody about Christ. I'm not even telling myself about Christ. Okay, don't condemn yourself. Go back to Romans 8.1. But hey, let's, let's, take a, let's take a step in a different direction now. Let's do that. All right, I'm out of time. Here's what I want to do. I, I want us to pray. I want to pray that God gives us a heart for the lost. And I want to pray that we don't squander our privileges. And then we're going to watch people get baptized. What a joy that is. So if you would, just join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much for just, um, just everything. God, I pray for myself, and I pray for this church. God, you are the hound of heaven, and you are relentless, and I pray you will, you will be relentless with each and every one of us and give us a heart for the lost. I pray that our hearts would start breaking for our family members, our parents, our children, our siblings, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, the people on television, the people in the government office. I pray that you would just break our hearts, that we would walk around with almost a limp to the heart to where we're just so broken over the lost. I pray that we can't stop praying for the lost. And I pray, God, if there's anyone here lost, they're going to experience the gospel and they're going to hear the gospel and Jesus, you would save them. God, may we be like Paul. Give us a heart for the lost. God, I also pray, I pray, God, that you would help us to not squander the privileges we have. Let us not take for granted that you listen to us, that we have your ear, that Jesus, you're praying on our behalf and Holy Spirit, you're praying within us and so uh, help us just to join along. Let, let, let prayer just be a part of our lives. May, may we not squander having your word right in front of us to where we can hear from you and experience the life from you through your word that increases our desires. May we not uh, forsake the gathering of one another as well, but may we, may we just kind of just joy to be here and dwell among one another as you dwell among us. God, help us to not squander. I pray, God, that there be no condemnation for those who are in Christ today. Maybe conviction. Maybe conviction. God, may that conviction lead us to repentance. And may it lead us to turn back to you in whichever way you've called us. And God, we thank you for what's getting ready to happen three times throughout this day. The people are going to come to be baptized. And so may it just be a testimony of how good you are, that you are mighty to save. Thank you that people are joining your family. Thank you that we get to be on the front row of that. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.